0: Fresh every Tuesday for MSPs around the world, world. around the world. This, this is Paul Green's MSP Marketing Podcast. Podcast. We're talking cyber security in this week's summer special, and I have a true expert for you on all the things that you really need to know about right now. Paul Green's MSP Marketing Podcast.
1: Hi there, I'm John Douglas. I'm the technical director and head of incident response at First Response.
0: And you were one of the wonderful people that I met at the SuperOps Super Summit, which was a conference in London in the UK several months ago now. And I was introduced to you after the event. And I can't remember the exact words that someone said, but it was something along the lines of this guy here, John, he's the MSSP that. MSPs turn to when they have a major cyber security problem. That's just a fascinating way to be introduced to anybody. Tell us a bit about your career, John, before you talk about what you do now and how you help MSPs. What's what's your background? How did you get into this kind of position?
1: That goes back a very long way. So originally I'm from New Zealand and uh, I was studying IT at university when IBM released the very first IBM PC, the one everybody remembers with the Charlie Chaplin ads and, and so on. Um, I worked on VAX 11780s and and other sort of large mainframe systems and things in in New Zealand. I moved to Japan uh, working for Yamaha as a programmer uh, after I finished my degree in New Zealand. And I I was designing computer software for designing motorcycles for for Yamaha. Um, I spent a bit of time working for a translation company in Nagoya in Japan, then moved to to Tokyo where I started working for a, a French investment bank. Doing basic IT support across the trading floor in Japanese, English, and in French. After a little while there, I, I discovered a way of reorganising our network that meant that we could get data into the traders, you know, two milliseconds faster than the guys down the road, which you know, in investment banking makes a huge difference. So the, the architecture team in London uh, transferred me to London on a two-year secondment 25 years ago uh and i've kind of been <laughs> here ever since so i i worked um i worked for the bank for for another six years in london designing active directory security architectures and, and structures and after a very nasty merger where, where it became an unpleasant place to be i left and i i started working for the metropolitan police as a forensic scientist i did a master's degree at cranfield in forensic science and uh then spent the next 10 years chasing pedophiles around the internet um, doing human trafficking investigations and, and you know murders, rapes, drug investigations, all, all kinds of stuff that involved computer forensics. And then in 2012 with austerity and so on, I left and with uh, some like-minded colleagues, we formed First Response, primarily to do digital forensics and li- uh, litigation support for civil cases. But we very quickly got pulled sideways into doing incident response and helping companies that had been the victim of a cyber attack and how to respond to that and and remediating and recover back. And that's kind of brings us up to date.
0: What an amazing career. And I definitely want to come back onto First Response and the work that you're doing now and cybersecurity, but I have to delve back into some of that career. So first of all, what was it like working in Japan? I've, I've actually been to Japan. There, there are very few um, Westerners that I know that have been to Japan. You're about the third or fourth person that I've spoken to. But what was it like living there and working there?
1: Well, to begin with, it was pretty tough. So I was working for Yamaha. And the, the Yamaha factory is, is out in the middle of nowhere. It's kind of out in the fields, miles away from Tokyo. And I spoke no Japanese whatsoever. So on day one, um, they took me to the factory and said, um, took me to, to the line and I thought, oh, excellent, I'm gonna get a, a tour of the factory. because I'm into bikes and I rebuilt engines and so I know my way around. And uh, I thought I'm gonna get a factory tour. Anyway, they put me on a position in the in the line and then said, I don't know, Today, Douglas san please put crutch in engine. And I thought, what, hang on, me putting clutches in engines, that's that's not right. <laughs> anyway, long story short, um, after a quick conversation with a translator, it turns out that everybody that joins Yamaha and, and pretty much any of the big makers in Japan, you spend the first three months of your career, regardless of whether you're in graphics design or, or accountancy or whatever, you work for three months on the line, kind of like army basic training. So that was a, a, a huge, interesting experience. And that's pretty much where I learned to speak Japanese um, in that day-to-day interaction. And that became really helpful in, in the time that, uh, you know, that followed.
0: I bet, and I bet you could also change a clutch on a motorcycle as well, which I'm sure would come in handy at some point. Let's look at the the digital forensic part of your career. So you were with the Metropolitan Police, which is the the police force in London here in the UK. I mean that must have been a, an, an insane job because we're talking fairly recently. I think you said you left in in 2012, so so you know less less than a decade ago that you left that. And I imagine that uh, that was when the internet was really evolving fast. So you must have been constantly trying to keep up with how. Criminals were hiding things from, from the police.
1: Yeah, indeed. And forensics is an arms race, very much so, a, a technological one. So we spent probably a good 40% of our time researching technologies. And and not that we were going out looking at technologies and pulling them apart to see you know, what they could be used for, but it was more that a case would turn up on the desk where a particular organised criminal network or, or just an ordinary person who had decided to do something dodgy... Um, had utilised a piece of software and one that I remember from the early days was Google Hello. The paedophile community sort of landed on that and started using Google Hello to transmit indecent material of children between each other completely under the radar Um, and it it worked out quite uh, effectively for them. But we had some good connections in with with Microsoft and with Google and others. And so they gave us access to diagnostic tools that allows us to, to reverse engineer some of the data structures so we could actually generate evidential material to take to court and give evidence. But what was really interesting for me about the whole forensic process was more the diversity of locations where, where artifacts, could be found. So, for example, I, I had a case I was working on a, a murder investigation and I was working with a police officer and uh, we'd come to a really good point where I, I had everything that he needed. And he said to me, oh, I wish you could help me with my other case. And I said, well, what's your other case? He said, oh, it was a, a drugs case. We, we arrested this drugs dealer in his car. And uh, just before we were able to arrest him, he ripped a lanyard, a USB stick off a lanyard round his neck and threw it into the river. we've been unable to recover it and we're pretty sure that had all the details of all of his drug deals on it i said okay and he was in his car what car was he driving it turns out he was in in a bentley anyway again long story short i contacted bentley the vehicle had been impounded and with some diagnostic tools that bentley gave us we were able to download all of the GPS data, all of the chat logs and all of the SMS messaging, uh, call history and everything else that had transferred from his iPhone across Bluetooth and had been stored in the car. So whilst he would got rid of a lot of the data on his, on his mobile phone and on this USB memory stick, we were able to pull back a huge tranche of data from the car itself. And of course, when you sort of superimpose the GPS data with the, the call dates and times and some of the message information in the chat logs, you're able to immediately unravel a whole lot of coded text and start to associate that with some of the other people that he was working with. That kind of technology and being able to think outside the box and, and grab stuff. Keeping in mind, this is 20 years ago. So it was pretty cool stuff. I mean, that's, that's fairly trivial to do these days because uh, you know, mobile phones and so on have got GPS units and everything, it's all in one box. So if you get access to that mobile phone, you've got everything.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a message here for criminals, which is if you if you're going to do crime, then leave your phone at home and drive a 1980s car, which isn't connected and doesn't collect any information whatsoever. Let's come straight up to date then, John, and let's look at what you're doing within first response. So you you formed this business back in 2012, and as you said earlier, you, your your aim was to help with litigation and forensics, but you you then sort of diverted off into this amazing cybersecurity world that we're in that we're in here. So what what caused that 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 shift? Was it literally demand, uh, you know, business turning up at the door or was there something else that caused you to go off in a different direction?
1: It was business turning up at the door, but came from an unexpected direction. And that was law firms that we were already working with in supporting them in civil litigation, where perhaps one of their clients was, was suing an ex-employee for stealing data or, or something or taking it to a competitor. But often the, the law firm would get involved in, say, a ransomware incident. Uh, that one of their clients had, had suffered. And so they would call us and say, hey, what can you do to assist us? We'd like to try and figure out who the attackers were. Um, but very quickly it became more around, actually we don't care who the attackers are because they're they're outside the UK, they're outside of our jurisdiction, and we're not gonna be able to do anything with them, but can you help us get the data back? And so we've been doing an awful lot of, of that. And, and certainly through the pandemic, uh, UK organisations and I'm sure you know most of your your audience will will also sort of click with this that organisations absolutely struggled to make that transition from on prem to working remotely um, and a lot of organisations managed to to make that transition but they didn't do so securely and so you know we saw countless instances of of organisations that were publishing rdp directly to the internet which, you know, is just a recipe for disaster. Uh, And they were getting hit with ransomware, you know, in in the sort of the peak of the pandemic, we were probably dealing with four or five cases of ransomware every week. It It was just crazy. And
0: how have you seen cybersecurity change? I mean, you, you mentioned the pandemic, which is obviously three, three odd years ago now that it, that it started. But over the last three, four, five years, how have you seen the, the, the kind of attacks change and, uh, and, and what, what kind of, of new – I mean, we all know what the, what the new threats are. But as someone who's actually dealing with it day to day, how have you seen it change?
1: I think probably it's become more organized. So uh, cyber threats are, are no longer you know, some guy in a hoodie in his basement who's just out for, for grins and giggles this is organized criminal networks and nation state threat actors that are doing this either to obtain uh intelligence for economic military or or, you know health and and, uh academic data that they're they're stealing or in the case of organized criminal networks it's purely financial they're doing everything for financial gain and they're hugely organized i mean ransomware attacks now uh typically you'll see a ransomware author who will be a pretty intelligent guy and experienced programmer writing in C++, who will create a a very cool, you know, piece of ransomware. And he will then market that on the dark web to organized criminal networks under a franchise scheme where the original author gets 20% of whatever ransoms the organized criminal networks are able to generate, uh, all paid in Bitcoin. And the organized criminal networks themselves have set this up as, a, as entirely as a business enterprise. They have help desks being run internally and, and sometimes uh, they're outsourced to Southeast Asia. where you have got you know large groups of, of people sitting there waiting to answer the phone to help companies through navigate the process of buying Bitcoin or decrypting their data. If, they ha- if they're having struggles to run the decryptor and, and decrypt the data, having paid the ransom, uh, the help desk is there to support them. It's a really slick, professional business now. It's uh, it's it's not the you know chaotic uh, script kiddie that that probably the media is still portraying them to be.
0: Yeah, and and which then begs the question: What do you think? It's I mean, this is very much a crystal ball question, but you're at the cutting edge here. What what do you think is going to change in the next two to three years?
1: Well, everybody's talking about AI, and and I have to agree with one of the speakers at the at the conference that we were at. In London recently, that it's that AI is neither artificial nor intelligent. It's just you know neurological language processing. It's it's nothing particularly clever, and we can see you know from some deeper analysis of ChatGPT that it, it looks pretty amazing on the surface, but when you start to dig into the detail of it, of it, it's actually quite inaccurate. Um, mm-hmm. It's giving misleading and false reports because I do uh, malware reverse engineering. Uh, as an ex-programmer myself, I'm, I'm always interested in, in uh, some of the, not just hacker forums, but also some of the hacking YouTube channels and so on that describe how they're using uh, ChatGPT to help them write code. And in some cases, code that could be used maliciously. And in every single instance, they're saying, there's huge functions and sections of code here that are either wrong or are simply missing. And the code will not operate as, uh, as requested. Now it might be that either the Chat GPT is, is not clever enough to do it properly, or that uh, that somebody's uh, coded coded in such a way to to you know not provide those results. I think it's more likely to be the former than the latter. The one thing that we can guarantee with cybercrime and and with the threat online is that it will continue to evolve. That Law enforcement are doing an enormous job to try and keep up with the technological change, but it is definitely an arms race. And I even see it in in my field of of digital forensics. When we're trying to analyze uh, artifacts, we're always one step behind the criminal. So, you know, a a new tool will become available on GitHub or will be released by a, a third party developer and they'll start using it for criminal purposes. We then have to take that tool, reverse engineer it using tests and test data to try and figure out what it's doing and how it's working in order to determine where the artifacts will lie that we can then use in our investigations. So there's always a delay. And even the the large companies that make forensic tools for law enforcement around the world struggle with exactly the same problem. you know you've got uk government at the moment trying to put through legislation that will weaken encryption such that law enforcement is is more easily able to understand what uh, would-be terrorists and other subversive people are, are, are communicating about but that you know there's a there's a huge conversation there just on itself really it's not a good look either for the government or for for personal privacy but uh, the evolution of, of cybercrime crime and the, the way that threats against the UK Evolve um, will continue unabated. We've already seen that with the Ukraine war, almost within weeks of of the UK pledging support for Ukraine um, in quite loud terms, that attacks went up from around 300 to 350 attacks per day to now well over 3,000, almost 4,000 attacks per day in a 24 hour period. And those are all just from the territory of Russia. Uh, in the last few days, um, the NCSC and GCHQ, the, the primary intelligence gathering organisations for electronic communications in, in the UK, and the NCSC, which is a kind of a, a cyber advisory group as part of GCHQ, have warned that UK national critical infrastructure organisations like uh, the power grid, uh, national rail, gas and water suppliers and so on, that national critical infrastructure, are being targeted actively by Russian threat actors uh, and that we we need to, to pay attention to that.
0: Yes, yes, I'm. I'm going to date this interview, John, because we we never normally uh, we we record these interviews quite far in advance of the podcast. But you and I are speaking towards the end of April. Um, so whenever this is this is broadcast, I just want to put that date on there because I I have I have a feeling that cybersecurity is going to move on yeah. in in just the two three months between time of recording and and broadcast. One final question for you, and then we'll talk about what you do with MSPs. What's the phone call that you dread getting? What's the what's the piece of information? that you know he's going to keep you awake tonight?
1: There are varied and many. Um, The biggest one is when a company calls us to say that they've been the victim of a ransomware attack, that all of their backups have been trashed and that they've got no logs. It gives us almost no scope for remediation and it gives us very little scope for making any determination as to who's responsible.
0: And I'm sure that there are many MSPs that would would would, would perhaps give a, a very similar answer. But we did open this interview by saying that you're the guy that MSPs call when they're in trouble. So tell us what you do with MSPs. How do you help people? What's a what's a typical case for you? Like a, a, a case scenario.
1: Again, it's typically some kind of it's an incident of some sort and. It can be anything from, you know, a, a disgruntled employee who's decided to sabotage the internal systems because he, he has some knowledge, or she has some knowledge of them. It may also be the case that, you know, a, a sexual harassment claim has been raised to HR in a in a client of the MSP, and they've been asked to go in and, and have a quick look and see is there any data there that substantiates the claim. Now the the wise and wily. Uh, of the MSPs will understand that the moment you start getting involved in those kinds of investigations, you're putting yourself uh, kind of, you're putting your neck on the chopping block, so to speak, evidentially, because everything that you do at that point can potentially be called to if, if that process winds up at a tribunal or at court. Um, you know, if it becomes serious enough, then, you know, the MSP can be compelled to give evidence at court about what they did and how they did it. And if you don't have a forensics background and don't understand the implications of what you've done, uh, for example, just powering on a Windows PC will change 600 dates and times. So that's 600 pieces of evidence that are now lost forever. Um, Digital evidence is quite fragile. So knowing how to deal with it is, is important. So we work with a number of MSPs where, in the event that they have some kind of incident that potentially could get sensitive, either for internal political reasons or just because it's it may potentially involve some criminal action then at that point they say hey listen can you guys have a look at this for us and that gives a a sort of at arm's length third party independence to the entire process which uh, which makes life much easier and obviously you know everything that we do we handle data evidentially and, and we're able to give evidence at court as expert witnesses You know, we've done that for many, many years. I'm really comfortable in that process.
0: Yeah, no, I can imagine. John, thank you so much for your time on the podcast today. Just finally tell us uh, what's the best way to get in touch with you and what's your website address?
1: Probably the easiest way is simply to go to our website, um, which is uh, www.first-response.co.uk. There's a contact form there. There's a phone number at the top and uh, pretty easy to, to find us. Coming up. Coming up
0: next week Hey, I'm Scott Riley from Cloud Nexus. Join me on Paul's podcast where we're going to be talking about how I managed to run one of the fastest growing MSPs in the UK without having a single help desk technician and I get to sleep at night and get weekends off too Scott's genuinely so funny, and he has such great stories to tell as well about how to grow your MSP. He is a big thinker, and that's why he's the subject of our final summer special next week. Join me next Tuesday and have a very profitable week in your MSP. Made in the UK for MSPs around the world. Paul Green's MS- MS- MSP Marketing Podcast.